0: I'm Mark Gagan, and you're listening to the Voice of Insurance podcast, produced in association with Advantage Go, enabling an enterprise view of exposure. Today's guest is one of the industry's brightest stars, and I think the podcast you're about to listen to amply proves why he's earned that moniker. The Voice of Insurance has been lucky enough to speak to him at an exciting time for him and the industry itself. A veteran of the Bermuda class of 1992, he's back again with a substantial startup looking to capitalise on major opportunities in the global wholesale specialty insurance and reinsurance market. Here, Greg Hendrick, the CEO of Vantage Group, runs us through his vision from top to bottom and dissects in great detail how he and his team is attacking a market opportunity. Greg has long been one of the best speakers on the insurance conference circuit, and here it soon becomes obvious that podcasting comes naturally to him. Here is someone happy, confident, energised, completely at the top of their game and ready to put a career's worth of knowledge and experience to work in a favourable marketplace. There's a ton of useful information here and I think you can learn a lot from listening over the next 35 minutes or so. Enjoy the podcast. Before we get started, I'm here with Rick Lindsay, Chairman of Prime Holdings and the CEO of Claims Direct Access, who have kindly supported this podcast. Rick, first, thanks so much for your support. Why don't you briefly tell us about the Prime Group and CDA and what they could do for our listeners?
1: Sure. Prime Holdings is a holding company, and we're excited to expand our claims TPA service, Claims Direct Access, which is the exclusive claims manager for Prime Insurance Company and has managed claims for Lloyd's since 1995 when we've been on the Lloyd's line slip as a risk taker. So we plan on coming over to London and uh, hopefully providing our partners more flexibility where we can issue Prime paper where necessary. We can support and take risk on the Lloyd's line slip and offer our superior claim service, which is evidenced by Prime's own loss ratio for the past 10 years. I believe that claims is the key to success in our business. That's really the only thing we do that adds value. Obviously, you can be a good underwriter, and if the claims falls apart, the underwriting is a waste of time. If you're a good underwriter, you need to balance the scale with good claims. So again, we're excited to bring superior claim service to the Lloyd's marketplace and offer the ability to share risk alongside them as we manage the claims.
0: Well, thanks so much, Rick. And I'll make sure there are all the right links in the podcast notes. And let's get on with the podcast. Well, Greg, thank you so much to give the voice of insurance some of the time of day. You must be incredibly busy. I mean, I always say that actually whenever I introduce any executive, but I know you must be particularly busy because you're building a startup business, Vantage. Very, very exciting times, part of the class of 2020. I'm sure most people have read about Vantage, but I don't think they would have heard you say it yourself and describe your vision for what Vantage is now and what it's going to be.
2: Thanks, Mark. It's great to be here. It's been too long. I think the last time we saw each other live was in some small room in Monte Carlo trying to do one of your very good roundtables. So it's good to see you again. Yeah, I think maybe if I start with a little parenthetical on that thought of startups in COVID, it's a very interesting time. It's On the one hand, it's obviously from a market cycle timing, a very good time. COVID was on the back of a number of events over the cats of 17 More cats in 18 and large losses, social or long tail loss cost inflation in 19 and more cats again. And then of course, COVID hit and now interest rates are zero or below if you sit in continental Europe. And so for us, it's a great time from that business cycle. It's also a great time because amazingly enough, people can actually fit in interviews a lot easier. (laughs) In these days, they just drop onto a Zoom call with you and go back to their day. But I will say it is a challenge building a culture with a new company. I have yet to meet my general counsel, Bobby Anderson, who's in Chicago. And we have a wonderful start to our working relationship, but just these unusual realities of the, of the COVID world. So it's it's in the one hand, it's a great energizing chart your own course, but it's still the challenges remain, particularly as you think about things like culture and how you want people to work. But yeah, I left in February. The first person to call me the day after that wasn't a close friend already was Dinos Iordano, who I knew and knew more kind of after he had left Bermuda than when he was on Bermuda with Arch. And he said, it's going to be a hard market and the time for NUCO and it's ready. And this is February. So COVID's in the air, but it's not yet the global pandemic it became. And I was a little skeptical, but sure enough, we started talking and quickly, obviously COVID changed everything. But then we quickly partnered up with Hellman and Freeman and Carlisle, two big PE firms that knew both of us from our prior lives, mine at MidOcean and subsequently XL and Dinos at Arch. And they're great. They've been in the risk business. They're patient. They understand what risk-taking is all about, how to do it the right way, that volume is not the answer, that margin is. And so we're very aligned on that front and without a big push to have to Turn this thing around and try and take it public in two or three years. So we're very pleased with our partners. And obviously, Dinos is a great non executive chairman and knows this business as as well as anybody. But we're kind of, we see three big advantages that we're going to play on to build Vantage. First is talent. Now, any CEO will tell you talent is the key, and it is. But I think we have a very unique opportunity here to attract a lot of talent because the classes that we're going after, which are predominantly short tail property cat specialty lines and reinsurance and longer tail, excess casualty, DNO, cyber, healthcare lines, and insurance, a lot of that risk-taking capacity is aggregated up into a few hands with very large carriers. And large carriers have a lot of great things to offer around stability and capital base, but sometimes they're stuck looking in the rearview mirror rather than looking forward at the opportunity. And so they're restricting coverage or they're closing lines of business. And generally, great talent that wants to be creative, wants to be in a building mode, not in a retracting mode. so We've seen the team we've built and the team we continue to build is world-class talent. The second one is it's great not to have legacy reserves, but it's even better not to have legacy technology. The absence of legacy technology lets us, with a blank paper, build everything in the cloud, rent those things that we can pay as we go, like general ledger and policy admin, and then build around it, either ourselves or in partnership with InsureTechs, things that make us more efficient and things that make us better analytically. And then the third piece is curiosity and creativity. I know those are two things, but to me, curiosity without creativity is, is an interesting thing, but not really productive to the marketplace. And it's a continuation of the push I've been on around innovation and how important that is for the industry, how we don't do it enough in general, and that there's a lot of opportunity. As capital returns back into the market, particularly on the ILS side, you're going to want to put it to work to close that gap between economic and insured loss. If it's in the property cat space, you're going to want to try and turn its attention to intangible, which is such a big part of today's marketplace, and try to create new revenue streams so you're not stuck just fighting over the old ones. So we're really excited. Talent, technology with data and analytics, and this curiosity and creativity, I think those three things are the hallmark of Vantage, and we're looking forward to building it out in the years ahead.
0: What's that sort of balance between the insurance and the reinsurance side that would be your ideal? If you were just putting on a piece of paper, what would be the ideal balance? It's an interesting
2: journey, Mark. Today, it's 100% reinsurance and zero insurance because you can get money in late October, early November, and by mid-November, be underwriting reinsurance in Bermuda. A-minus rated, billion dollars of capital, handful of people, and you're up and running and going. So right now, we're all reinsurance. And Chris McEwen is leading that. And we've hired Jack Kuhn to build out the insurance side. And that, we think, is a bigger opportunity assuming the current economics and returns exist over the next, say, three to five years. I have to emphasize that that assumes the returns stay the same. And I'm, you know, We can all debate, will reinsurance get soft again? Will insurance is harder for how long? And I'm sure we'll talk about this during the course of our conversation, but just at the way things play at the moment, we see a better opportunity in those insurance lines I outlined. And so we would see kind of more of a two thirds insurance, one third reinsurance over time. But I can tell you, we will be what the market will let us be in terms of return profile.
0: Well, actually, we must well go straight into that insurance operation, that big opportunity that you see. That's quite a lengthy process, and obviously capital intensive process. And would you want to have boots on the ground, particularly in the US market, in the insurance market? Is that the way you see it? Or do you think it's something you can do sort of from 20,000 feet either in London or in Bermuda?
2: We've decided very much to be Bermuda and North America to start. doesn't mean that we don't love London. We do. And we understand the opportunity there. We felt a couple of things. One, on the insurance side, there was a very, very large dislocation in those lines of business I just outlined long tailing in North America. And we felt that's a great opportunity for us to play for it. and more proximate to Bermuda. And you can write the insurance both in Bermuda and North America. So yeah, the plan is it's a class four carrier in Bermuda that at the moment is only writing reinsurance, but it will be writing insurance as well. The lines that classically make it to Bermuda. And we hope to pick up some of the business from London into Bermuda as well, obviously not at the level of flow that you would see if you were in the city or in your home in the city, I guess these days, I should say, rather than being there live. And definitely though, we are in the process of buying an ENS carrier. It's in front of the state of Illinois for approval. So we'll have that capability hopefully in a month or two. We're in a number of processes around buying an admitted carrier, and we're about to close a deal with a front company. So we'll be up and running roughly for April 1 in North America underwriting some of those classes of business. Bermuda should come right
0: behind it. And so that a obviously that's to get you in the game quicker. Are they sort of more what we describe as perhaps of shell type companies, or are they actually, have they already got substantial operations and income of their own?
2: Yeah, no, the ENS carrier has never been used in anger, as I like to say. So there's been nothing underwritten against it. It was set up by somebody and they decided not to use it in the end. The admitted carrier has long ceased underwriting. So it'll be the licenses and no systems or people. And that's fine. That's, that's what we were looking for. We explored avenues on what I would call the more traditional M&A front and just couldn't find a fit for us that we felt that didn't bring with it some kind of reserve risk from the past, or it didn't accelerate or even maybe held back a bit our technology moving forward. So we just didn't find anything. And we felt that taking new money from great partners like Hellman and Friedman and Carlisle, we should use it to build, not buy.
0: So you're going to be really building Bermuda insurance, really building North American insurance in different hubs using your ENS and admitted lines of vehicles. And so obviously that's the immediate priority. Say over if everything plays out well and these margins hold for the next three or four years, you said you love London. Is London third on the list there to be something that, you know, in year three or four or five might be something you'd be looking at?
2: Absolutely. There's a bandwidth issue around, we're up to 25 people already, so we're growing fast. We'll probably be 100 the year. There's just, you know, you've got to be able to, particularly around the regulatory, to do it the right way. You need substantial footprint, we believe. So we've already got that in Bermuda. We're up to 10 people there. We're going to have it in the US. We won't have it in London. And COVID makes that not impossible, but makes it very difficult. We have been able to move back and forth to Bermuda. It's a bit clunky with lots of, t- I've been tested, I think, 11 or 12 times for COVID. Fortunately, negative so far. But you can get back and forth, whereas, you know, think travel between London and New York at the moment is, I don't think it's possible or very likely in the near term. But as you say, three to five years, we'll have a look. And look, we're going to stay close. We have so many relationships. I have traded with London since I was at Mid-Ocean in 95. And that's how we got to know the Brockbank people, which ultimately became XL Syndicate, XL London, obviously the Catlin folks and all our broker friends. So we'll have a look and, and see where we go.
0: And um, are you looking from a long distance at... Um- what Lloyd's is doing, Lloyd's is reforming itself. Is it something that would be a, holding attractions for you, or would you could you just stay in the company market in London?
2: No, we, I, I from my prior role, completely supportive of John and the team and where they're headed to reform the marketplace. And so we would definitely be agnostic to company versus Lloyd's and see where it takes us. I think buying something is going to be a little problematic. Just the multiples, for reasons we can dive into, not the least of which is scarcity value, are quite high, and so I, I don't see us. Going that route unless something changed in those multiples.
0: When we also talk about the state of the market itself, brokers said that your presence was significant at 1-1. So obviously in the reinsurance market. So how much traction did you get? And are you happy with the showing you got?
2: Oh, we were we were ecstatic. It was back to the old days of mid-ocean or tempest or wherever some of the team started. Nick Pritchard was on the ground in Bermuda. Chris McCune and I were going back and forth. We had well over 200 submissions on the property cat side. We had very good signings, very few times that our line was not taken up in some shape or form. And we felt like we got a very good spread of the market. And so we were very, very lucky and very grateful to our brokers and clients that have supported us over the years that continued that here at Vantage. I think in addition to the property cat strong showing, we have what we call a specialty reinsurance operation, which is, I think, bigger than the traditional kind of marine energy aviation use of that, word. it's things like per risk and crop. We're doing something on film cancellation, a small contingency there. So, there's a number of little niches of business that we're writing that we got very strong showing there as well. In fact, it was just bluntly, there wasn't enough of us on the ground to handle it all. We've since been joined by Peter White and Miles Staples, and the two of them have added to the team with Nick, and obviously Chris leading it, and we're now in a much better position to be able to handle that inflow of submissions. So we're, again, I can't thank everybody, but you can't thank people enough for the support and trust in these early days.
0: So it was a bit like Mid-Ocean without the fax machines.
2: <laughs> Mid-Ocean without Mark Berry and Charles Ski, two names from the past. Mark having recently decided to retire, but they were shuttling boxes back and forth between the office and the Hamilton Princess. So uh, we were stuck in the Hamilton Princess the last week of December because COVID had flared up. And if you were new to the, you know, if you had arrived on the island, you had to wait eight days before you could go to the office. So Chris and I were in a hotel room in the Hamilton Princess underwriting, very reminiscent of the old days, but I think with a few more computer uh, chips involved than, than in the old days.
0: I think there are worse places to be holed up than the Hamilton Princess.
2: <laughs> there are indeed. There are indeed.
0: So you were surprised and pleasantly surprised with your showing. Does that mean that, therefore, these were the sort of things that you could put your prices on as well? Brokers are begging you to participate? Was it that so you could name your price?
1: Oh, I,
2: I'll i just tweak that question a little bit, Mark. You know, I don't Do think, brokers begging, ever beg- I think begging, begging was, it would be a bit strong. I think we were very fortunate. There was some turmoil and turnover in the marketplace at the same time as we showed up. And so that was very much a driver of getting a good showing. I would say it was what we expected, but not what we hoped for. Definitely returns are stronger now in the cat space than they've been for a few years. You can debate whether they need to be stronger, and I think we would argue they should be, particularly as you're thinking about risks that are, at the moment, very difficult to figure out what a true run rate is like wildfire and others. But we felt that there was enough of an improvement that we could get to that kind of mid-teens return that we want. Um, and pick our way through the marketplace to build a portfolio of profitable business. But it was not, we had, when I say hoped, it certainly felt for a few weeks or months that there was going to be even more return on offer than that. But as you've seen others return capital over the last few weeks here, you know, it isn't as strong as we had hoped for.
0: But it feels pretty good and you're happy to take it.
2: Yeah, and much improved, much improved from where we were.
0: And as a reinsurer, what's your expectations going into 1st of April and the mid-year renewals?
2: I think it's a continuing firming of pricing. I think you've continued to see development on COVID uh, losses in particular. There was a, I'm not sure it made all the press, to maybe a 7.1 or 7.3, depending upon whose governmental service you use to write an earthquake in Japan, which reminds everybody that risk is still real and present at all times. So I, I think we're going to see a continued firming of that and an increase in demand from customers as they buy more. And I think a matching increase in supply as the ILS capital seems to be starting to return. To the marketplace after having reset a bit and gotten their feet settled underneath them again, particularly around, are you covering natural catastrophes? Are you covering pandemic? Are you covering both? Are you, so I think the coverage clarity on the cat side has gotten a, little, a lot better than it was obviously pre-COVID.
0: One of the real sort of paradoxes of this hard hardening market has been previous hard markets come about very obviously sometimes because of a real lack of capacity and lack of capital. We don't seem to have that lack of capital and capacity, but maybe we don't have that capacity available in certain lines and in certain places. But in that kind of environment, perhaps you know, as a 2001 startup or a 2005 startup, you could just turn up with the capital and be offered to be on programs because of that. But these days, it seems that you have to bring something else. So what are you doing particularly to try and differentiate yourself in a market that isn't lacking in capital
2: yeah so this would definitely be in a, a reinsurance question because on the on the insurance side we feel and continue to see strong data points that buyers of corporate insurance, particularly on the long tail sides, cannot buy enough cover as they A, used to, and B, want to, even if they're trying to adjust for the reality of the marketplace. So so decidedly on the insurance side, I'm not gonna say it's it's just you, you show up and name whatever price you want, and there you have the order, but it is, you do get a, a good showing, and we will get a good showing on the insurance side because there is a capacity shortage. But if I address your question on the on the reinsurance side, I think you need to, you know, it is still, I started and I'll do it in the order of the kind of the three pillars it is still a people business. It is still relationships. Chris, Nick, Peta, myself, Miles, you know, we've been in these markets for a long time and know a lot of people that have traded with us and trust us. And I think that word trust is important in the sense that they expect us to be there when, when the claim needs to be paid and we will be, and they know how we react and how we think about the business. And so that we're a very consistent marketplace. So decidedly relationships is, is a number one thing for us because it's still a people business. The second thing is the technology that I talked about. There, we're walking before we can run. We had to kind of string some things together, but we were able to get back on the property cat side, particularly in a pretty reasonable, quick time, turn it around, do some of the analytics that you need to do to be confident of the portfolio you're building in, and monitor that portfolio and craft a portfolio that we're very pleased with, that is a little more kind of single state, regional, super regional in North America and less of the of the nationwide cares, although by no means are we not seeking out the nationwide care as we are, but we were able to craft a little better portfolio there in terms of spread and diversification. And then we were very fortunate to get great showings in Europe. Japan looks to be equally strong from some of the conversations we're having already. So for us having that technology and be able to get through it, it is walking to start, but we will continue that. And then this idea of curiosity and creativity, it's not a big intellectual journey sometimes. It is quite often as simple as what are you struggling with and can we help you? And trying to turn the answer from no to no, but here's what we could do. And I think we did that on a number of occasions, less so than we anticipate doing over time. Because as a new entry, you're, just, you're trying to fit into the market. You're not trying to disrupt it and cause all kinds of issues around it. But we did have a few instances where we were able to help solve some problems in a creative way that I think brokers and clients appreciate. And then that knocks on to get you more showing in that regard as well. Over time, that lever is one that we want to pull on harder and harder.
0: What about access to third parties, often been a big part of different um, insurers and re in your space? You've already done that to support your retro book. Is that going to be an important part of the Vantage model going forward, like a sort of ren that kind of strategy?
2: Yeah, I, it absolutely will be. We have found and are blessed to have the wonderful problem of being able to source more risk than our capital base can hold. And so we did start a very modest but right out of the gate, ILS capability, writing collateralized retro at one, and we still have some capacity left in that vehicle. We intend to be uh, a meaningful user of ILS. Not sure yet entirely exactly whether that means funds, whether that means sidecars, whether that means cap bonds, or whether it means all of those things. We're still working through that and kind of trying to read the ILS capital provider's preferences of what they want. It is a very diverse marketplace. And you don't always get the same answer each time. About I want to have a fund, or I want to be in a, I want to have a company that I own. There's the sidecar, or no, I just want the capons because they're more stru- you know, they're more structured and standardized. So that will be a big feature, mainly because of this idea of making the pie bigger or baking new pies, you know, creating new premium streams. We're very proud of what we've been able to do with Carlisle and Helman and Freeman, but it isn't enough to take all the risk that we have. And so we're going to need those partners uh, with capital to help take that risk. And so we believe it's a big part of the future. Our CFO over on spent a big chunk of her career at Goldman Sachs in that space. Chris McEwen, obviously, myself. You You have three people that are really deeply invested in the ILS marketplace and deeply believe that it is here, it is here to stay, and it will take on new risks as we go forward. I am going to hedge a little bit, though, on exactly what that looks like for Vantage, because I will say it is an interesting market at this time to sort out where does that money want to be put to work.
0: But it's always going to be part of your strategy. That ability to put down a bigger line than you would otherwise do and be more important and be and solve more problems on behalf of your clients is it sort of a permanent fixture?
2: Yes, I think so. I think so. I think so. For you know, I think if you look at the relative sizing of the industry to some of these problems, let alone Vantage, the issues, the risks outweigh the industry capital, and so you you need outside capital to come in and help solve these. So it isn't. It is vantage decidedly because of how big we are, but, and what we can do. But it's also the industry in general. We're in a state of affairs where in the U.S., less than 50% of flood risks insured. Less than 10% of California homes uh, are insured against earthquake. In the Philippines, at least the last time I looked at it, less than one percent of the losses insured. You know, these are just massive sums that we could all be working together to solve. But we do need more capital than we have to offer, and right? it takes both the insurance industry and third-party capital.
0: I'm going to want to pick your brains. It might be one of those ones where the answer would be something that a journalist would say, well, he would say that, wouldn't he? Because you don't have to pay these losses. So you're sitting in that happy position, Greg, with no legacy. But given your very long experience and in in long and short tail, and particularly long tail, there's a big division of opinion at the moment about whether the incumbent market will really need significant reserve strengthening to fill the gaps left by um, perhaps, you know, what was missing during those leaner soft market years. What's your view on that? Obviously, it seems that history never repeats itself, but it sort of rhymes. And it's very difficult to know. If you look at the class of 2001, everyone knows that the 96 to 2000 that preceded or 95 to 2000 soft market that preceded it really caused a massive liability hole that needed filling over that uh, replenishing over that 2001 to 2004 period where every quarter we saw negative numbers in and you know reserve strengthening virtually every quarter from every incumbent player accompanied with obviously good news about the current book that they were writing and price rises but what's your view on on that have we got away with this time do you think there's going to be no pain because it seems to be there's less pain Anyway, I'm talking too much. I need to ask you.
2: No, I I, I enjoy this. It's always great when you get asked a question that's been answered by the question already, Mark. (laughs) Look, history does rhyme. You observed quite rightly exactly what I would observe today, which is you used 96 to 01, I think, and then it got covered in 02 to 05, right? Basically, in terms of 01 to 04. I think you could argue about 15 to 19 or 16 to 20 or 17 to 20. But just think about what happened in those four or five underwriting years. The cats, the large risk losses, whether you call it social cost inflation or just liability loss, cost inflation, COVID, those don't just emerge in one go. I have always believed trying to put a nominal number on it. Is a bit of a challenge because everybody reserves their books differently and you don't have insight from the outside looking in to know who's conservative, who's maybe less conservative, who pays as they go, so to speak. But clearly there are tens of billions of dollars of reserves that still will need to be put up across those years that will emerge in the coming few years. and I don't think that's changed in our our marketplace, unfortunately. To me, that's a good actuary squaring a few triangles on industry data out of the US can get to that conclusion pretty quickly.
0: But as a new player, you're not hungrily waiting for one of the big incumbents to literally fall over in a sort of alliance no. or a girling moment that suddenly shocks everybody and changes the market.
2: No, I, one is what I touched on earlier about our talent opportunity. A lot of this risk has gotten accumulated up into very large balance sheets. And so you would need a a really massive problem to tip somebody over, and tip somebody over that could really be a meaningful hole in the in the marketplace. That's one. Two. This is not a capital. I think you noted that in that one of your questions, earlier, right? This is not a capital event hard market. This is a profit hard market, or better said, an absence of profit, hard market. So if you wrote reinsurance and large corporate insurance in 17, 18, 19, and 20, you struggled to make any money in any of those years um, and probably lost money in, in almost all of them. It's very easy for me to say that's not an acceptable return for an investor. So that's what's driving this change is the fact that there just was not enough. You hit a period of activity both on the short tail and long tail side, and a reduction in investment income all at the same time, right after four or five years of intense price competition. So this is what drives this hard market. And that's a longer term fix than someone tipping over like you noted earlier.
0: Another big question that is dividing opinion is a consensus that probably has emerged after all the 1-1 renewal reports from the big brokers of an industry loss between 50 to $70 billion range for COVID for the industry. Do you, do you think this that has any credibility or do you think it's still far too soon to say?
2: Oh, I given the answer I gave to the last question about avoiding nominal <laughs> numbers, I'm going to dodge it a little bit. But I will say it certainly feels to me like there is more loss to come than what's been reported in the aggregate so far. And some of it may never be reported clearly, you know, not everybody's going to raise their hand and say I had a COVID liability loss of X, it just will show up in their loss ratios over time. So you may not get the whole picture and how do you do the ins and outs of workers comp for instance, you know, was the COVID impact negative because you could observe these claims that you are paying or was it somewhat positive because for many more risky classes of business. There was less activity. So you have all these ins and outs from COVID, but it is, I think 50 to 70 is as good a guess if somebody actually made me guess, but it's a guess nonetheless. And it's still an emerging topic. It's still not, you know, as you know, I'm sitting in in my condominium, you're sitting in your apartment or or home and and we're here for another, whatever it's going to be, three, six months. So it's still an ongoing event.
0: So it's really that liability element that obviously we can get our heads around uh, the first party and the business interruption probably by now. But of course, we still, so it depends how long it lasts for, which is still uncertain. Of course, with things like the Tokyo Olympics and things we might have assumed this time last year would probably go ahead, but now are still fifty-fifty 50 or whatever. So it's really the liability element of it, do you think, that is because it's still to be developed, really, the, the, the law and the case law around it?
2: You know, it's a two-part. One part is it's still going on. So you're still getting first-party losses. I mean, I don't know how everyone has reserved their books, nor should I, but how much have you put up for Tokyo if it does get canceled and what does that mean in terms of the total loss as a good example of losses still emerging. But yes, the bigger unknown is around those, how much liability losses do you end up with? How much DNO loss do you end up with? When governments stop supporting economies, do you have mortgage losses? Do you have other trade credit losses? How do you ever circle back and point those to the COVID finger because they won't happen for three or four years later? Right? I think all these things are interconnected back to COVID as a real seismic shift economically. The reverberation takes a while to play out over time.
0: One of those would be DNO, I presume. is that a point where, you know, if you're going to go into high excess DNO, is that where you really earn your money as an underwriter? You're taking those risks because people are running away from them with companies that we're not sure whether they're going to be around in three or four years' time?
2: It's definitely a factor as you underwrite and like every, you know, I'm going to say this as a longtime underwriter, every account is a completely different story in terms of its risk profile, its structure what it pays and all that. But yes, you are trying to sort your way through that reality that many of your clients or prospective clients may end up being a little bit tilted more towards loss than, than they were before because of COVID. And I think that's a reason you're seeing, there was a little bit of debate there about is it slowing, is the rate of increase slowing? So it's just leveling off at just 40 points. You know, I think you're going to continue to see increase, whether the rate of increase goes up or whether you stay flat, it's still meaningful increases in terms of the premium to compensate for some of this risk, Mark.
0: And I suppose compound interest is compound interest, and that's always the best kind.
2: (laughs) Yes, given you have none on the balance sheet side of the equation.
0: You mentioned about when you set out your vision and you mentioned about your investors. I talked to a lot of people. They almost say that they could be a private company forever, or that they would like to be a private company forever. And that's on the broking side and on the carrier side. I mean, others are IPOing and doing other things. So it's courses for courses. But what's your design? You're saying you've got fairly long-term capital. You see, you're not under pressure to suddenly get a return in year three or year four. But what are the expectations of that investor base after that? And could you be a public company at some point within the next five years?
2: Yeah, look, Dinos is the non-executive chairman and myself as the CEO and the rest of the leadership team. Our, our job is to be good stewards of capital, of our shareholders' capital. You can be a good steward of the shareholders that are in the public equity market, and you can be a good steward of shareholders that come from the private equity market. We happen to be on the private side. We will do what is best for our shareholders as we reach each milestone in time. I think you've noted already one of the wonderful things we have is two major investors that have been in this space before in terms of risk-taking That we're in the vehicles that Dinos and I were in for five, six, seven, eight years almost in one case. And so there isn't a pressure to get out of there. If, however, things go incredibly well, and the reality is that we can get our shareholders a better return by becoming a public company, we'll do that. And we'll do that together and make that decision together. But there isn't any misconception. We are not here to grow, 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 and then sell. We're here to make an underrated margin, to fill a void for our customers and brokers where there's an absence of capacity. And then as those things we believe go well, we'll address how the capital looks like, whether that's staying private or or going public.
0: I suppose investors do eventually want to return. They don't like to look at just pieces of paper that say they've made lots of money.
2: Yeah, certainly, certainly there is an element of reaping the gains in a different way than just the piece of paper. Yes.
0: You mentioned before about another great thing about being a no legacy carrier these days. Of course, you don't have to pay lots of old losses from deficient years, but you don't have a a technological legacy either. This class of 2020 that you're forming part of, it's quite interesting. It's probably the first time that's been mentioned. It wasn't really something we talked about in 2005, for example. Is that just because technology has advanced so much in the last 15 years that now it really is? Of course, nobody would start a business not being on the cloud these days. You wouldn't want to have a server sitting in the corner of your office anymore, would you? No, Is that the real value of it?
2: Yeah, yeah. So the real value is, one is you get to take advantage of, I think it's the last five years, really, that's been massively accelerating. And the capabilities, the data capture capabilities, the data storage capabilities have really taken off. And so you can you can actually do it technology-wise now and not be trying to be on the bleeding edge. There are sources out there, more and more of your core software is in the cloud as well. And so you're able to charge on that path. I think InsureTech has made a huge difference here as well. It is an area that I've been around through a number of different things in my prior life and continue to be completely a believer in. There has been and will continue to be firms doing great things with technology that are solving particular pieces of the puzzle, whether it's an underwriting workstation to make submission intake faster whether it's a predictive modeling, whether it's better data around your exposures in the marketplace and on and on and on. There are partners you can work with now that didn't exist five years ago that can help you be better at that in a pretty leverageable way where the cost is low to start. If you're all successful together, the cost will grow, but you're not paying out front to try and and source that. So I think that's the second one is there's a really great bouquet of tools from the insuretechs that let you make some real progress. And I think the third one is The people you just got now, you know, there's another generation of folks come along that are really, really comfortable with technology that don't see the value in a lot of the manual work that we used to do and want to get it automated and move forward. And so I think that talent pool has changed a fair bit. That I would say over the last 15 years is a meaningful change as well.
0: Is there any of that technology you'd like to have in-house, to have proprietary that you can keep as a secret and you know one of your secret sources, or is it real? Do you think the real value is the having that openness, having that ability to plug in with all these various providers who are going to give you that edge in certain different niches and different places, or is it a bit of both?
2: It's a bit of both. You definitely want on the efficiency, so whether you call it an underwriting workstation, the intake of a submission, the, the processing it through the machine, the issuing a quote binding the policy, there are pieces in there that you will want that will be proprietary and the, and definitely in the data analytics space will be proprietary. But the tools you use can be shared and can be open source. And, and it's, it isn't about what tool you use. It's about what you do with that tool and which components of data you capture and decide to put together to create a price or decide about the quality of a risk or the likelihood of, it to, of a risk to buy a product from you. That's going to be core to us. And I imagine over time, there will be some technology that will be core to us as well. But I think that's less and less as I look at the landscape at the moment.
0: Does it tempt you, when we look at, uh, we've had some IPOs in the insurtech space last year, when you look at those valuations, does it tempt you not to completely rebrand or to brand Vantage as being the insurtech?
2: Yeah, I, I, you know, Mark, you always hate to admit when you're only a few months into something, you made a mistake already. But yes, I made a mistake. I've, I've referred to Vantage as a tech-enabled reinsurer and insurer. I should have called it insure tech or a reinsure tech, but I didn't. So we move on.
0: And you mentioned about culture right at the beginning. And from what you're describing, you're going to be building... Obviously, at the moment, there's just a few of you because you're just doing you're doing reinsurance from Bermuda, which is like the old days. But now you're going to be building a really substantial business that's going to have a lot of employees doing insurance in North America. How do you go about now? That must be exciting and interesting as an executive with all your experience. Now knowing what you've known and having made mistakes or and, and had successes at different times with different cultures that you've worked in through M&A and all sorts of experience that you've had. What's the most important starting point? Because I'm sure, you know, as a serious executive, you would have sat down with your board and said, what are we going to build here as a vantage business?
2: Yeah, I like you start to me, you start with the vision and the strategy of what I've talked about here, which is you have a unique period in time in the marketplace that allows you to get in lines of business that even 12 months ago, if I had showed up to some of the big brokers and clients and said, Hey, I'm going to write a five or $10 million DNO line. Okay. Maybe I have to adjust my timing. Maybe 18 months ago, they would have scoffed at that or certainly challenged it greatly. And so you've got a marketplace opportunity. We've got this, I believe, unique opportunity to build something with the technology that's, that will enable us to write and address the business in a whole new way that gets us an advantage on the cost side. And that gets us advantage on the analytics side. And then this third piece that I think excites people the most, which is this idea of we're not just going to go and fight for what what the existing premium streams are, we're going to create new ones. And we intend to do that. And and yes, early days, a little harder to do that because you're getting your infrastructure set up, you're becoming a credible reinsurer and insurer. But certainly we'll do it in little steps early on here. And in the middle to longer term, we'll do it in bigger and bigger steps. So I think that first step is what's that vision? make sure you hone it. We've done that myself, myself with Dinos, myself with some other folks that have been helpful to me over the years and then the leadership team here at Vantage. And then you're also at the same time putting together a first cut of values of how you want people to go about their days and and weeks as a member of the Vantage team. And then you're trying to do the messaging of that one-to-one as you bring people in. Another big advantage is you're able to recruit into that environment and you're able to share that vision and and way of working and have the emphasis that you would expect from me on collaboration. So you can recruit into that base. And then you do your best. I think the challenge that, that I'm at, at the moment with myself and Nikki Gonzalez, who's our head of town, is around this idea of, okay, how do we create that culture in a virtual world for the time being? Right, you can't go around and do a bunch of town halls, or we're too small for the phrase town halls, uh, a bunch of coffees and really see people and, and talk through these things and live them together. You're trying to do it. And so we're, we're putting a few mechanisms in place to do that. So it's really about getting your people and your culture and your strategy all aligned together and working in the right way, and being cognizant that you do have a few challenges with the physical nature of things at the moment.
0: And if you were able to put everyone in the same room, would you would, would, you, would you have a really open plan kind of place where all your uh, programmers and and analytics people are sitting right next to the underwriters and the legal side and the finance people that they're all kind of mixing together?
2: So we have one office right now, which is in Bermuda, which is open plan. There's a couple of conference rooms to dive into to, to make calls and have meetings, and, but it's open plan. And yeah, I, I, I'm going to put the parenthetical on assuming it's safe in COVID terms. That's what I would prefer to have. It is obviously a lot of conversations at the moment are around. Is that a safe environment to be in? Is that, is that a temporary problem that we have and we get back to things that are more quote normal? I don't know the answer to that yet, and I don't think any of us do, but to the extent we can get the open plan, it's a great way to share knowledge and and collaborate well together.
0: Well, Greg, I've really, really enjoyed our conversation. You're very concise at answering. I think I've I had far too many questions, and I think we've answered all of them, <laughs> which is great. And you're very you you're good at answering all the other questions I had. In the answer to question number one, you answered question number three, four, and five. So it's been really enjoyable just to speak to you because obviously you were out of the market when you do something like this. Obviously, you do have to disappear for a few months at a time, and it's wonderful to have you on the show. And it looks like yes, you to have to come back regularly to give us updates because you probably have tripled in size by the next time I speak to you. So. Good luck with everything, and thank you so much for being on the show. I've really, really enjoyed it.
2: Thank you for having me, Mark. Keep up the great work. I'm, I'm enjoying what you're doing and the content you're putting out there, so really good to see you again.
0: Thank you so much. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this program. These really help get the word out. Before we go, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in The Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium, where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience, because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. The Voice of Insurance is produced in association with Advantage Go, enabling an enterprise view of exposure. Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com.